Hello and welcome to the Chasing Society podcast. Today we're going to talk about one of the absolute giants of sociology, Talcott Parsons. And we're going to start with his very first big book, the two-volume The Structure of Social Action. Get ready. So before we start, let me first give you a little bit of background to that book. Because it's quite important, even though um, I believe it's not really read anymore. <laughs> so it's more like people know about it and know how important it was. But I don't believe that many people who end up having a sociology degree of some sorts have actually read it. So there's a lot of, let's say, cliche views out there. And I think this is oftentimes falling quite short of the depth and the sophistication of Parsons' work. The Structure of Social Action was published in 1937, so quite some time ago. And according to Joas and Knöbel, it was actually discovered much later by the scientific community. Anyhow, let's start from the very beginning. What is this book about? So the easy answer would be it's a book about Alfred Marshall, Willifredo Pareto, Max Weber and Emil Durkheim. But you guessed it, it's a little bit more than that. Now, frankly, it is about those four people, predominantly, but it is, of course, not simply a summary of their thought. It's a summary with a purpose. You can read it as a history of ideas of sorts, or a history of sociological ideas, because Parsons walks us through what he believes to be four eminent sociological thinkers. Now, they have not necessarily called themselves sociologists, and even today, I don't believe that at least half of them would be referred to as sociologists. But for Parsons, that doesn't really matter, because what they did was something that is sociologically relevant. So they contributed theoretically to sociology, whether they like it or not. <laughs> But it's more than just presenting those thinkers and giving them due credit, so to say. Parsons wants more. And what Parsons wants to do is he wants to show that those four thinkers have independently of each other recognized that something was not really adding up in previous thoughts about human action. But that's not everything. And what really distinguishes Parsons' book from other critiques or summaries of critiques of thinkers, is that he also claims that they have not only seen a similar problem, but also come up with similar solutions within their own theoretical framework. All four of them have developed thoughts in their theorizing as a critique of previous thoughts, and they did not only share the critique, but they also shared the solution, even though they put different words and labels on it. Parsons writes, quote, The structure of social action analyzed a process of convergent theoretical development which constituted a major revolution in the scientific analysis of social phenomena, end quote. So in other words, there were four people, at least, who converged in their theoretical findings or in their theoretical progress that they have made. So what was this magical convergence then? Let's first remember that the book is called The Structure of Social Action. So it's not called The Structure of Society. 
It's called the structure of social action, which means that the book looks at social action. Not really a revelation, but important to keep in mind. But why not society? Well, ultimately, for Parsons, but also others like Max Weber, society shows itself in social action. So, we of course, we know that we cannot observe society directly because as a material being, it doesn't really exist, right? Society is visible only indirectly. And Parsons and others argue that its most important realm is action, or in that case, of course, social action. So in order to understand society, we need to understand social action. But there is another problem related to social action, and that is the problem of social order. This can be understood if we go back to Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, and that is, in fact, also what Talk Parsons is doing. Thomas Hobbes argued that human beings are, by default, egoistic and only interested in fulfilling their own needs and desires. And these desires are, of course, also egoistic. So if humans could do as they please, if they were not constrained, not restricted from behaving in the way that serves them best, it would automatically lead to a situation of a war of all against all. So everybody would essentially start fighting against each other because you'd only care about yourself and you will get what you want on the expense of all others because you simply don't care, because you're egoistic. In other words, someone needs to order society. Human beings cannot do it themselves, so somebody else needs to do it. And this is Thomas Hobbes' famous Leviathan. Quite likely could have been some form of monarch or a constitutional monarchy or whatever it is. Important thing is, in order to get order in society, you need someone, some external force that constrains people and that makes sure that these egoistic bastards don't take what they want to have. But the problem with that assumption is that this situation, this thought experiment of Thomas Hobbes, is in fact nothing more than that. It's a thought experiment because never has anyone seen that. There was never a situation where this type of war of all against all has existed. You can go all the way back to the Paleontolithic Age and for all we know, this situation of a war of all against all between human beings has never existed. But let's be nice to Thomas Hobbes. The book was published in 1651, and this was arguably a time that was rather chaotic, characterized by upheaval and riots, and his view on human beings may very well be informed by his own experience of the time. Now, it's still wrong, for all we know, but explainable. And on top of that, this inclination to believe that human beings are egoistic and only want to pursue their own selfish ends is still very much a matter of common wisdom, even in today's society. Now, even that is wrong, for the most part, not always, of course, but I think it is still some sort of common wisdom that runs through everyday society. However, more importantly, this false assumption about human nature has wide-ranging consequences, not only for the solution to the problem of order, but also for the explanation of social action. What Parsons is pointing out is that on the basis of pure 
utility maximization, of utility calculation, if these were the actors that we would be facing, which is most likely not the case, because this is not the human default. But of course, we know that human beings from time to time, and some more often than others, do act egoistically and mainly focused on their own ends. But anyhow, if we just assume for a moment that human beings would be purely egoistic, utility-maximizing actors and nothing else, even in that situation, we would not be able to create a reliable social order. Why? Think about it. Let's take a leviathan in form of a let's say a king or a queen, just like to make it a bit simpler. So think about this Leviathan knocking on everyone's door saying, hey, I have a deal for you. If you promise me to not hurt anyone, to not kill anyone, to not steal from anyone, I will make sure that no one else is stealing from you or killing you or doing anything to you as well. How does that sound? Sure, sounds like a deal, I'm in. So the Leviathan does this with everyone, knocks on every door and gets the agreement from everyone. And we even allow this Leviathan to get a police, prisons, or whatever have you, so that this order can be enforced if needed, or at least that the Leviathan can threaten people enough so that they would not even dare. Sounds like a pretty good deal, and sounds as if this would probably result in a stable order. We have made a social contract. Now Parsons comes in and tells us, uh-uh, this is not going to result in a stable social order, not in a stable, reliable social order. Even if everybody gives their agreement, this is not enough. Why? Think about it yourself. Do you believe that presupposed that all actors are purely egoistic, rationally calculating individuals. Would you believe that there would be a stable social order? Intuitively, no. So the question is then, why don't you believe that? Well, simple answer, and a bit cheap possibly, is because you're human. And as a human being, one thing that you can never establish on the basis of utility calculation is trust. If the only thing that you know about you and other people on this planet is that everybody always acts only in their own favor and in their own egoistic interest, you would probably not even agree on that contract in the first place. You would never give up anything to anyone because you do not trust anyone. There is no trust in utility maximation. So essentially you would constantly have to do the math as you go through this world and constantly recalculate if it would still be everybody's best maximal interest or best maximal result if they would follow this agreement that you have made. In other words, you always need to think about, is it still so that everybody that surrounds me at this point in time is still having the best possible results for their activities if they follow this contract. And as soon as they don't, you need to be careful. So aside from the fact that this is pretty unrealistic, that you could do that and constantly run the math <laughs> if, you, if you would be living in such a world, it is also pretty clear that the contract and the situation for utility maximization could change in a second. 
and all of a sudden nobody cares about the contract anymore, right? Because as soon as the first one breaks it, everybody will break it. So if we run the thought experiment of Thomas Hobbes to its logical final conclusion, we must reach a point where we either say, well, if it is the case that human beings are purely egoistic and utility maximizing, there will never be order. Or we need to ask the question, if there is order, how is this possible? And as Parsons says, but I don't think you need Parsons because it's obvious, there is order, right? We experience it every day, most of us, at least, most of the time. It's an undisputable fact that there is order. And there is also an undisputable fact that the premises of Thomas Hobbes would not allow this order to exist. Hence, there is a problem with the premise. And the question that needs to be asked is, how is this order that we experience on a daily basis possible? Because we have it, we see it. And now we need to look for the premise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Society. We will solve one of the greatest riddles of sociological theory together with Talcott Parsons in the coming episodes. Stay tuned. <laughs>